Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. John M. Luce, MD, FCCM who is the sole author on an article published in the August 2010 issue of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is A History of Resolving Conflicts Over End-of-Life Care in Intensive Care Units in the United States. Dr. Luce is a professor emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco, where he is also a physician at San Francisco General Hospital. This is an article that will come out in Critical Care Medicine 2010, Volume 38, Number 8. Thank you again, Dr. Luce, for being part of the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So uh, when I read this article, uh, Dr. Luce, I, I couldn't wait to start coordinating with SCCM to speak with you. Again, as I mentioned to you before, I did my fellowship uh, as part of your group uh, about 10 years ago now. And the case you present, which I'm going to read into the podcast, struck a chord for me, having worked in two large uh, urban academic medical centers here in New York City. And, and you point out, and I know the way you worded it was fine, but that it can be, I guess you said the legal ramifications can often be not common. But this particular kind of case is one I've had to deal with, unfortunately, frequently, and, and it, they can be very upsetting. So I'd like to just read that in and have a conversation with you about it and take it from there. Sounds good. You present the case of an 86-year-old man with chronic hypertension, heart failure, vascular dementia, and new-onset acute myelogenous leukemia. He was treated with conventional chemo, and eventually, uh, not unsurprisingly, he stopped responding to chemotherapy. He was then admitted to the ICU for respiratory failure caused by presumably tumor infiltrates in the lungs. He had no advanced directives. And I guess, actually, to keep it as a dialogue with you, one might stop right there and say it at some institutions and a a man of this age group with these complications some would argue about whether or not to even allow him to be admitted to an intensive care unit do do you want to talk about that for a moment well i certainly agree with you um i think very often however these patients are admitted and as was the case here it was done um, by his oncologist Um, some intensive care doctors are less eager to admit these kinds of patients, but very often they are admitted by non-intensivists and in some cases by intensivists themselves. I think the issue becomes more germane to the article when uh, the family or the patient uh, insists upon admission, which is uh, often the case also. Certainly in some countries, um, for example, Australia, New Zealand, uh, there would be uh, explicit uh, policies uh, regarding uh, not admission of these patients, and decisions would be would be made by uh, intensivists who control closed units. And I know we talk about this fairly frequently in our division, that the diagnosis of cancer should not be something that prevents one from being admitted to a unit. I know there's a whole field of, of literature on this. That's correct, although, as you point out, this man had multiple comorbidities and uh, a disease that was not going to respond to treatment. So the team advised the family that it would not be best to intubate him if he could not be maintained on non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. They, the oncologist and the intensivist, recommended that he not undergo CPR in the event of a cardiopulmonary arrest. 
The family rejected this advice, stating that he was, quote, a fighter who would want full support, and that, quote, every day that he lived was a blessing bestowed by God. During intubation, he had a cardiopulmonary arrest, approximately 30 minutes of CPR with subsequent severe hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. The family refused to allow withdrawal of support, insisting that he would recover, even if a miracle were required. The family was not persuaded by an ethics committee. The intensivist tried to interest other physicians in assuming his care, but was unsuccessful. And after another week of full support, he suffered another cardiopulmonary arrest, and this time could not be resuscitated. The family then sued the hospital, the oncologist, and the intensivist for malpractice, claiming, quote, they had not done everything to save him. And I know that you have a whole large article here, and I pulled your recently published article from the American Journal of Respiratory Critical Care Medicine, but I personally could speak with you for three hours just about this case. <laughs> so uh, maybe if you'd like to talk for a few minutes, and then I, I have some questions. Well, as you pointed out in the introduction, uh, cases like this um, do not always become lawsuits. Uh, I thought this case was particularly dramatic because uh, it did become the basis of a uh, claim on the part of uh, the patient's family. Uh, the case itself is a somewhat fictionalized version of, of a case that uh, uh, is real, and um, it was a reminder to me of how uh, extreme these cases c can can go. I point out in the article that these cases are, are relatively rare from the legal standpoint, and I think they're also relatively rare um, from the ethical standpoint in that, and I stress this uh, in the article, that usually um, physicians and families, which is the usually the two, the two uh, sides, if you will, that are involved in intensive care cases because patients can rarely speak for themselves, that usually physicians and families can work out these difficult situations. Uh, it may take a lot of time. It may require an ethics committee to be involved. But in my experience, the overwhelming majority of these kinds of cases um, are resolved short of a lawsuit and short of, let's say, more protracted negotiations and stalemates. Uh, nevertheless, as you point out, uh, and has been, has been true in your uh, case and in mine also, when these cases come along, they really uh, stay with us. Um, they become a focus of incredible anguish on the part of physicians and nurses and hospitals from our side, and of course, uh, anguish from the standpoint of the uh, patient's families uh, as well. It's right to, to focus on these cases in the context of an article like this, which deals with how to resolve conflicts, but at the same time, it's important to stress that conflicts, although they happen, are not the name of the game. Uh, in most cases, I think this has been true of your experience as well, in most cases, when physicians make recommendations to families that support should be withheld and withdrawn and that further care is not going to be beneficial, the families uh, come around to that point of view, uh, even if they haven't had that point of view to begin with. But these cases do exist, and that's the focus of this article. Having trained where you are, under you, and then having worked in New York City, where the focus of something like the Dartmouth Atlas has pointed out how we, in general, don't do a good job when you focus in on how many days do people spend in an ICU before they die. Uh, regardless of how frequent, I would think that 
discussing how young intensivists can grapple with these and and come up with some sort of quote-unquote right answer, I think it's important because, as you point out, these cases, when we talk about rationing of healthcare and rationing of intensivist ATP molecules for a particular day, you can end up sinking all of them into a case like this where there is sort of deep-seated unhappiness on the part of a family that, A, that even a physician, uh, I've had this, where even bringing it up, bringing up that the situation isn't going well, can destroy relationships between the family and the ICU team. And uh, I guess one of the reasons I'm bringing this up is to prevent intensivist burnout, because there, there has to be a way... Uh, and one of the other issues I wanted to bring up with you, which has come up at some hospitals and other others, is sort of who owns the ICU bed? Who gets to say, well, that's fine that you want to, to do, quote unquote, do everything, and we can discuss what that means, but we've given you enough of a trial of critical care and we're moving you to a floor bed at this point unilaterally. And I, and I know that your experience, uh, whether or not uh, that can be done medical legally, is certainly discussable, right? Well, yeah, and you've you've asked several questions. Let me let me speak to the the latter one first. That is to say, who has the right to decide what to do when patients like this uh, linger in the intensive care unit? Uh, do we as physicians and do our hospitals have the right to uh, remove care or transfer the patient out of the intensive care unit? This, as I point out in this article and in other articles that I've written, is not an issue that's been resolved in this country. Uh, when physicians generally have gone to the courts and asked for permission to remove care or not provide care that the family insists upon, the courts have generally sided with the families. When physicians have, presumably with hospital approval, unilaterally removed care from patients or limited care in patients like this, and then been sued by the by the families for what turns out to be usually malpractice, since that's the, the civil approach to these kinds of, of, of situations, the courts have been unwilling to prosecute physicians. Uh, and, and as I point out in this article, in cases that I've served as a defense expert in in California, the cases have just not gotten very far because, the number one, there's little money to be gained by plaintiff's attorneys, since these patients would be likely to die uh, very shortly anyway. And number two, they have a difficult, they being the plaintiff's attorneys, have a difficult time finding credible experts who would say that what the physicians did is below the standard of care. But we don't have cases in which, as, as as is true in other countries, for example, in Canada, in Australia, uh, and in other countries around the world where these kinds of cases have gone to trial or gone to a judge, um, and, the, and the judge has made decisions in favor of the physicians. Again, the cases are usually brought by the, by the families, and in other countries, the judges have cited when, when, when the life support has been withdrawn or when it's being, the physicians are asking to have it withdrawn, the judges have decided with the physicians. This is not the case in the United States. And therefore, if you use the courts as a reflection of our ethics, which I think in part is true, there doesn't seem to be uh, a consensus uh, in, the, in, in the courts that physicians uh, can have their way in cases like this, even though we as physicians consider it entirely reasonable. 
uh, I consider it reasonable to limit care. But let's not forget that we work we work in and live in an environment in which uh, certain politicians, including Sarah Palin, have accused the present administration of trying to develop death panels that would decide the fate of presumably of patients such as the one in this particular article. Uh, and, and the public reaction has been one of horror. So there's a strong sentiment in this country that uh, the rights of patients, the rights of families need to be protected, that anything resembling rationing is anathema and should be prevented. You'll, you'll note, for example, that uh, Donald Berwick, who is uh, President Obama's choice to be the head of the, of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, his appointment uh, has been condemned by a number of Republican politicians because he allegedly favors rationing. I guess just to follow up on that, maybe that's the best thing for me to do is to let you talk a little bit about some of the history because that was the major focus of the article and maybe if you'd like to, because it seems what was nice about reading this article is you can watch the pendulum swing back and forth from some of, the, as you point out, the early years, the ascendance of autonomy, the futility movement, and as you're pointing out, the pendulum swinging again uh, away from th having these cases even be sort of majorly discussable, even though it may be repugnant to the physicians that we're clearly just prolonging the dying process. So if you want to take a few minutes maybe and, and just present uh, for the readers the, the, a little bit of the history. This article was written from my perspective as someone who's went to medical school in the 1970s and has been practicing in the intensive care unit ever since. And I lived through um, many of the years that I describe in this article, and it's obviously my interpretation of history that other people would have I'm sure a different interpretation of, but the way that I see this evolving was that when ICUs were created, and again, maybe I'm reflecting my own youthful enthusiasm when I first started working in the ICU, I think that we thought that we could cure a lot of diseases, that we could improve the lives of lots of patients. And I think that um, we also operated under the assumption that everybody would want the kind of therapy that we were providing. Um, as a result, speaking of the pendulum, uh, in the 1970s, uh, most physicians felt, and I recall this very vividly from my own training, that to not provide care, openly to not provide care to a patient in the intensive care unit, would be the equivalent of homicide. Uh, the word passive euthanasia was used to describe uh, removing care from or not providing care to somebody. And as I point out in the article, and as I learned from Bob Trug, who I consider probably our finest uh, intensivist ethicist uh, in the United States, the real change in the idea that, that uh, removing care was homicide was brought about by the need for organ transplantation and the decision that organs could be transplanted if a patient was declared brain dead, therefore, that one could remove care. And this set was sort of the prototype for what eventually was extended to other patients who were not brain dead. But I think without that precedent, we would have not made the progress that we have. We had key legal cases in the 1970s, in particular the case of Karen Ann Quinlan. This is an interesting case because this is a case in which the family sought to remove care from their member whose physicians and hospital refused to do so because they considered it unethical. This was a vegetative patient. And the New Jersey Supreme Court decided that, in fact, this patient did have a right to have uh, care removed and provided a mechanism for allowing it if an ethics committee agreed with the 
prognosis that was offered um, the the hospital by the by the family in this case that further care would not yield a return to consciousness of this particular patient. Eventually, in the Cruzan case, the United States uh, Supreme Court agreed that patients who are competent, who can make decisions, have a right to refuse any and all medical therapy, although the court imposed some potential restrictions on how surrogates can make decisions for families, and this uh, has resulted in your state uh, and in uh, Missouri, uh, where uh, it's relatively, it's, it's more difficult to work through surrogates than it is in states like California, as you recall from your own training. So this pendulum then, uh, with these cases, uh, I think swung towards the issue of patient autonomy as, as uh, if you will, um, carried out by family members in the intensive care unit, and away from the ethical principles of beneficence and non-maleficence that had allowed physicians to make decisions previously, decisions which in most cases were to continue care over families' objections. Nevertheless, I, as, I, as I see the history, with the ascendance of autonomy, which was only helped along by these cases, that, those weren't the only factors, a number of physicians, uh, I think, resented the encroachment upon our traditional ability to make decisions for patients. And I believe that the futility movement came about in part as a reaction to the autonomy movement. In essence, the futility movement, the use of the term futility, which is still commonplace in our field, came about because physicians wanted to convince their colleagues and society that in certain cases they had the right to define what was futile care and to not provide it. In other words, to obtain some sort of social sanction for doing this. Now, definitions of futility were brought forth. The most uh, widely known one was that of Schneiderman, Jecker, and Johnson, which basically quantitatively defined futility as something that uh, a measure that, w- that had been proven unsuccessful in the last 100 times, and qualitatively defined futility as the long-term dependence on intensive care. In other words, somebody who could be kept alive only by long-term care in the intensive care unit. These ideas of futility, this definition of futility, was picked up by others, and as I point out in the article, the American Thoracic Society Task Force on Biomedical Ethics, of which I was a member, came out with a declaration that basically said physicians are not required to provide care to patients, for example, who are vegetative and who have a dismal prognosis. The Society of Critical Care Medicine, interestingly enough, which, which, whose ethics committee was led for many years by Bob Trug, took a different tack on this, it basically said, because Bob had written extensively on the problems with futility, that futility couldn't be well-defined, and that what physicians might consider futile was considered potentially beneficial by families. And therefore, the issue came up as to who has the right to decide. And the Society of Critical Care Medicine Ethics Committee sort of tried to work around the issue by saying, let's forget about the term futility, let's call some treatments uh, that are extremely costly or of uncertain benefit, let's call them inappropriate and inadvisable. But, of course, the Ethics Committee never gave anybody any teeth as to what to, how to use this uh, 
uh, if you will, change of words, inappropriate for futility, give anybody any teeth as to what to do with that. In other words, yes, okay, we think it's inappropriate to give care, but what do we do now? The Society of Critical Care Medicine did not sanction unilateral decision-making on the part of physicians or, for that matter, hospitals. And about this time, as futility was being debated, people came up with sort of operational ways of defining it and of using the concept of futility to make decisions about patients whose care was considered, if you will, futile or inappropriate. In the Bay Area, a number of ethics committees, and I was part of this work uh, came together and created a, a process in which basically when physicians and families were disagreeing, the hospital ethics committee could be empowered to review the case and the hospital would be allowed and the physicians be allowed to transfer the care of the patient to another facility if they, uh, if they could. And in lieu of that, if they couldn't transfer the care of the patient, they were, uh, if you will, allowed to remove care from the patient. But in actual fact, that didn't happen. As far as I could determine, it, it was the, this idea was never utilized. However, in Houston, starting at Baylor, uh, the same sort of approach, using ethics committees as, if you will, judges and juries, was advanced, was accepted by a number of hospitals in town, and ultimately was incorporated into the Texas uh, Advanced Directives Act, which had been originally created to encourage doctors to follow patients' advanced directives and allow support to be withdrawn. Now it was, the act was amended to <clears throat> allow hospital ethics committees or ad hoc committees to make decisions about patients um, in the intensive care unit who were thought to be, if you will, futile. There's been some interesting literature that's come out of the implementation of the Advanced Directive Act. Again, Bob Trug has has criticized the act by allowing ethics committees, which are so institutionally bound in their point of view, to serve as judges and juries, whereas the one of the founders of the of the act, one of the creators of the of the policy um, in Houston, Dr. Fine, uh, has supported the act as being a, a good way of dealing with these kinds of fertility disputes. The constitutionality of that act has not been determined in Texas or in any other venue, and therefore uh, I don't know what would happen if this act were challenged. But the process, to me, has the advantage of being a process. It basically says that or allows for when the physicians and the families don't agree and are at loggerheads and emotions are, are riding high to say, okay, let's take this out of our hands, let's turn it over to another group, in this case, a quasi-judicial body, not a real judicial body, and let's have somebody else decide. And I think that that's the most practical approach that's come up yet. Uh, the ethics committees that are doing this in Texas may not be the right groups for this because I think they are perhaps too institutionally bound to representative of a doctor's point of view, if you will. Uh, it would be, I think, more desirable to have a more neutral body, and perhaps that's where this issue will ultimately go in the United States. But when I say the pendulum is swinging, it certainly swung back from the days of Quinlan when doctors wanted to give care to everybody and thought that it was illegal and unethical to, to do otherwise. Now we feel that it's quite ethical to, in many cases, not provide care. So the pendulum has swung. Now, where it's going to swing in the future, I don't know. I don't want to make too much of the um, <clears throat> death panel idea. I'm not sure that every American believes the death panels are a bad idea. Uh, Newsweek had a uh, 
covers a story on death panels, basically <laughs> editorializing that in many cases death panels or, or the or the equivalent would be a good idea in our society because we cannot afford to provide unlimited care for people who, in the final analysis, can't benefit from it. But frankly, I don't know how this is going to be resolved. So I wanted to take a few moments, thank you again, uh, to talk a little bit more about the Texas experiment because that seems to be, uh, I guess, new and and. It doesn't seem too different from what certainly a lot of hospitals or the couple that I've worked in in New York State uh, do already if there are issues where there isn't a healthcare proxy and the family is asking to stop. We will have a meeting of the ethics committee and present, and if there's clear and convincing evidence. But your point is this is a slightly different role and a little bit more teeth for the ethics committee. Is that correct? Yes, and I can tell you that at San Francisco General Hospital, where I work, the Ethics Committee has refused to get involved in these kinds of cases. They don't want to have the teeth. <laughs> they want to be advisory. They do not want to be quasi-judicial. So that's fascinating. They, they, I would have, I would have never thought that. So they, they don't want to be involved. No, that's true. Even though we have a hospital policy that's been approved by the city and county of San Francisco, which after all owns our hospital, even though the University of California, San Francisco staffs it. We have a policy that gives physicians the discretion to not provide care that they consider non-beneficial, and yet physicians, generally speaking, won't act upon that. And we haven't had a trial case. We haven't removed care from somebody and then faced a family going to court. It would be very interesting to go through that. California law, the probate code in California, says that physicians and hospitals are not required to provide care that they consider unconscionable. And at the same time, allows them to um, to transfer care. But it doesn't say that if you can't transfer the care of these patients, which in most cases, as you appreciate, is never going to be possible because no one wants to handle these patients. I mean, nobody in his right mind wants to take on a, a patient in the ICU who all of his colleagues think has a hopeless prognosis and in whom there's potential for a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. So most of these cases, as is true in Texas, don't get transferred. But you know what the what the California law doesn't say is okay. You, you yes, you can transfer the patient, but what happens if you can't transfer the patient? Are you empowered to limit care? Well, hospitals in California are acting under that assumption. Whether it's a valid assumption, whether it's a legally valid assumption, remains to be seen. I guess because we're sort of heading towards the conclusion, I wanted to share with you some of my thoughts that I've gained over sort of a decade on how I live with myself handling these cases, trying to be a good intensivist, and then let, let maybe have you talk for a few minutes uh, on those ideas and, and what your perspective is, because these are very difficult. Um, again, in a case that I have that's similar to this from from a couple of years ago, it was actually the nurses that are upset because they can feel that they're providing futile care. And I guess, and again, part of my fellowship under you was to be able to feel that moment when we should be trying to transition to a more palliative approach because there is such a thing as as a good death that we may be prolonging suffering that we, to the extent that we can know, feel that the outcome is inevitable and bad. And yet, what I've learned with experience, though, is that you don't want to be every single day that you're on rounds be tormented that there is this conflict between you and the family uh, about where the patient is, because then then you'll burn out and won't be able to help other people. And so my sense is to share with young intensivists that sometimes there just will be cases like this, and to that you're correct to think about that we should be transitioning to care, but it may be okay sometimes to, to not push. Well, yeah, I, I think when you when you look at these kinds of cases, 
I think the the best thing to tell the young intensivist is that, um, yes, these cases are going to occur. Again, to remind ourselves that they are the exception, not the rule, but they are they are common enough that they stick in our craw and will and will poison our thinking for our entire careers. There's no way of getting around that fact because everybody has had these kinds of experiences. What Bob Trug suggests in the final analysis is, in my mind, the best approach, and that is to get some distance on these kinds of cases, to help support one another in providing care that we disagree with, that rather than overriding families' requests. That's his approach. I think it's a well thought out approach. I think Bob and his colleagues have, you know, have written so much about the futility movement, and and um, anybody who wants to learn about this issue just <laughs> can just Google Bob's name or go to PubMed and and read his writings. I, I think that's a good point of view. I, I think you just have to take a deep breath, suck it up, and say, okay, let's go to work every day. And and yes, what we're doing we don't consider beneficial, but we're working in part for the families. Most of these patients are going to die in the intensive care unit eventually, if not right away. It's such a hassle to go through a lawsuit, even if a lawsuit is never taken to, to term because of the reasons that I gave earlier. It's such a hassle that I just don't think any physician wants it. So your unit's full. A salvageable patient is coming out of the OR who should be and must be in an ICU, and your only bed would be to send that patient to the floor. And we have to address this sometimes in New York City, and I was just wondering, do you have any more <laughs> senior thoughts for me about about how, maybe the kind of decision-making to make in this kind of situation? Well, what you've described has been written about extensively, and it's called the paradigm of the last ICU bed. And it gets up to the, it gets down to the issue of rationing uh, at a time when rationing is called for. The problem with the paradigm is that, as you know, every bit as well as I do, in most hospitals, I can't speak for yours, but in most hospitals, there's probably as many people in the ICU, if not more, who don't belong there because they're too well to be in the ICU than there are people who don't belong there because they're too sick to be there. And therefore, when you think about how to free up that last bed, assuming you have to, obviously one way to do it is to send out the patients who, again, <clears throat> aren't benefiting from ICU care because they're not sick enough. Assuming for the minute that that's not the case in your hospital or in a given hospital, then then there is the issue of the last ICU bed, and the only person who you can send out is somebody who can't benefit by virtue of being too sick. To do this would be ethically justifiable, and probably would be a compelling reason um, if this, if a case, if a lawsuit ever came out of the out of the situation. The problem, from my standpoint, with the paradigm, aside from the first problem that I described, which I think that too often we have people who are too well to be in the ICU in the ICU. The problem is that, in my experience, and I've practiced in the ICU for a long, long time, in a in a in a relatively impoverished county hospital in San Francisco, we rarely can't find a bed for personnel. We'll put somebody in the post-anesthesia care unit, and we do it all the time. You may have done it when you were training here. Right. So that, that you know, in, again, in actual fact, I think, I think the paradigm stands in front of us because we see that, the, that, the, that rationing is a legitimate thing, as Dr. True would himself argue and has done so. It is a legitimate thing. It would be legitimate ethically 
to withhold care from a patient who couldn't benefit from it if another person could. After all, triage is, is a long, long, has long been a part of medicine. But again, I think it's more symbolic than it is real. I think it's a symbol we haven't gotten yet to as a profession or as a society to the point that we can rationally ration. And I, most people who look at this beyond these specific cases or, or who talk about these specific cases, try to get them, as you yourself are doing, to another level, to a level of social policy regarding what is beneficial care, what society should be spending on patients, and how we should be using our resources. And unfortunately, in a country such as ours, where we are struggling to develop something in the way of a national health plan, again, over tremendous political resistance, tremendous political resistance on the part of Republicans, that, that and I'm not all of them, but, but many of them, and some Democrats as well, we're, we're making incrementally small, but I think meaningful steps, but we're so far removed from countries in Western Europe and in, in countries like Australia and New Zealand, where national health plans have been in place for many, many years, where the public accepts decisions made by government in, for the overall benefit of society and decisions made by physicians for what they consider the benefit of society. We're, we're, I don't know, I, want to, I don't want to say we're centuries away from it, but having been involved in, in fighting for universal health care in the United States for all of my professional life, we have a long ways to go. Well, Dr. Lewis, I... I want to tell you, you have personally touched my life because I think the most important thing I've learned from this is that discussing these issues makes one feel better and allows one to, to, to move forward because I'm very proud to be an intensivist. And in these kinds of cases, as you say, can be very painful when you want to do the right thing as an intensivist. We've been speaking today with Dr. John M. Luce, MD, FCCM. He's a professor emeritus at the University of California, San Francisco School of Medicine, and he's an intensivist at San Francisco General Hospital. And we've been talking about the incredibly important topic of a history of resolving conflicts over end-of-life care in the intensive care unit in the United States. Thank you very much, Dr. Luce. It was a pleasure to talk with you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website, at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as nearly five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Registration is now open for SCCM's 40th Critical Care Congress, the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Celebrate four decades of society leadership and help chart the course for the future of critical care medicine. This year's Congress will take place January 15th through 19th, 2011 in San Diego, California, USA. Visit www.sccm.org congress for more information or to register. Or you can speak to a customer service representative. Experience all the hands-on workshops, cutting-edge educational sessions, and thought-provoking plenary sessions Congress has to offer. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City. 
practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.